talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a little Hello, and welcome once again to More Like the Worst Wing, the show where here in 2019, we take a look at Aaron Sorkin's seminal television series, The West Wing, in a bit more, let's say, enlightened, leftist, socialist perspective. I am Stu. And I am Dave. And this week's episode is the one that we have titled in our notes, The New York Minute Song <laughs> Lyric Episode. Yes, the, pro- which is, the proper title is Somebody's Going to Emergency, Somebody's Going to Jail. And it is in our humble opinion, way better than last week's <laughs> fucking awful episode. <laughs> Damning with incredibly faint praise here. Uh, but yes, absolutely. A lot more entertaining. And one of the reasons why, it is our second Big Block of Cheese Day episode. Hooray! Everybody loves Big Block of Cheese Day. Right. Except for the administrators. Except for all of the staffers, uh, other than Leo. <laughs> Leo, who uh, fucking loves it uh, and is super excited. Uh, but we'll get into that in a second. We actually open on Sam sleeping in Toby's office, not his own office, uh, because we find out Sam doesn't have a couch in his office. Uh, I guess when you're deputy communications director, you don't qualify for the couch. <laughs> you don't rate a couch. <laughs> but Toby does. So he's sleeping in Toby's office. Uh, Leo comes in early and wakes him up and is like, hey. And uh, Sam's like, what day is it? <laughs> And then Leo's like, uh, you should go home if you're asking that question. <laughs> and then we find out that he's not just there because of the typical kind of West Wing trope of, of working super hard. Uh, he has been there for the last, like, three days or so because, and in a very inelegant form of exposition, uh, Leo just kind of dumps out that uh, Sam has recently discovered his father has been cheating on his mother for approximately three decades. Uh, he's had a woman in an apartment in Santa Monica for 29 years, uh, in Sam's words, and Sam is pretty fucked up about it, uh, clearly. And is like, throughout the episode, Roblo is is very, they do their best to make him look disheveled and, and unkempt, but he's Roblo, so it's, you know, it's kind of a losing battle. Well, and yeah, the, like, he's portrayed throughout the episode again as, um, it's a it's a decent attempt to make him um i think you know more relatable and to humanize the i mean honestly of any of the staffers sam's probably in in a certain over he's basically like the robotic one where he's just like right well i know everything about everything right and he's and, and he's also the idealistic one um and so this is kind of like bringing him back kind of down to like the more cynical uh ground of things particularly with where his plotline goes uh, but we'll dig into that more. Uh, that is the first thing we see, but then we quickly transition into uh, Leo's talking about protesters that he encountered on the way to on the way to work, which sets up Toby's plot line later in the episode dealing with said protesters. Uh, but then Leo talks about how it is the second annual Big Block of Cheese Day. Um, which, as you remember from the first Big Block of Cheese Day, uh, he tells the apocryphal story about uh, Thomas Jefferson having, or sorry, Andrew, Andrew Jackson. Jackson. I'm sorry, my mistake. Andrew Jackson. Well, you used a great word for it. So yes, apocryphal. You, know you get a pass. Thank you, um, <laughs> because it's not true. Uh, he did not have a two-ton <laughs> block of cheese. Uh, but this is the story Leo loves to tell about Andrew Jackson ha- having a two-ton block of cheese out in the White House lobby for everyone to come and have a piece. Uh, and in the spirit of that uh, welcoming. 
they take this one day of the year to meet with groups that they would not normally meet with uh, and hear what they have to say and report back to the president about um, those issues. And so we get the usual kind of rundown of like, here's some funny joke groups uh, that have to get met with. Um, and the staffers are all pissed and kind of, like, up in arms and trying to trade between them. Ed and Larry try to swap. Uh, and, like, it's pretty funny all around. There's a really, really funny comedy moment here where, uh, when all the staffers are trying to trade positions, Leo's like, Hey, hey, I am sure that Margaret worked very, very hard to make sure that every single person got matched with the exact right group. And behind him, Margaret is just shaking her head no vigorously. <laughs> and then Leo turns around to look at her, and without hesitation, she shifts into nodding yes vigorously. It's it's it almost makes the entire episode. <laughs> I I laughed so it's, hard. It's a beautiful <laughs> bit of physical comedy. Yeah, uh, and so, the, sadly, uh, it's hard to describe over audio, but hopefully, you get the gist. <laughs> you don't have to watch it, but if you wanted to watch a scene. This would be a good one to watch. Yeah, it's funny. There's no politics to get upset about, really. Uh, other than the fact that, hey, maybe this should be more than a once-a-day-a-year thing. Um, maybe well, we should be listening to, like, the non-lobbyist groups a lot more often, actually. Yeah, and, I mean, a lot of uh, the whole setup for this, especially, um, it, it seems at the time unnecessary for leo to go into such detail and all these people talking about like oh well my commute was disrupted because sorkin writes like paragraphs yes. of description of like i took this uh -huh. route oh, like i had to turn straight, left on like P. minute or two about leo's alternate route he had to take and to work yes it's it's like the most dc signaling like insider like nudge nudge wink wink type of I, I looked up a map of the near streets near the white house <laughs> everyone yeah and and uh i don't know enough about dc to i'm sure it's accurate it's accurate sure, it's but i'm sure it is yeah, yeah i'm sure they had someone double check everything um but yeah it's funny because it sets up kind of the straw protester thing uh, and what's funny is this is way before black lives matter got famous for blocking traffic um, as a very effective way of of getting noticed, um, because if you don't if you don't interrupt people, you don't get noticed. Uh, so that's kind of well, how protesting works. It's it's in the name, you know. Like, so for for you and me, this is also um, this is probably referencing a time period that we weren't very particularly aware of. Course of course not. Yeah, this these is, things being being extant at all because i mean in you know let, let's call it the cultural references around the wto and nafta in the late 90s i was 14 years old absolutely yeah i'm, I'm watching the fucking... phantom menace and thinking it's a good movie because <laughs> yeah. i'm 14 and a star wars fan and i don't know no better <laughs> well exactly and so this is something that also um it speaks to a stereotype that has been continually been perpetuated that even today is like oh well you know you can you can make reference to any of the progressive or socialist movements today and invoke these stereotypes that are written into this show because it it's convenient and lazy and sort of like this has always been the case of these granola hippies yep. 
blocking traffic yep. and getting in the way of serious people getting right. serious and, shit and not did. accomplishing anything you know um and it's it's somewhat infuriating but it is also um it's very telling it's telling and and to be fair it's kind of like when you look through it it's encouraging because like this is all they have right this they need to yeah. rely on this stereotype because they've spent frankly this show as a cultural institution has spent a long time drilling that into the head of the average American as the image of your protest. Right. And that's all they've got. Like That's all like, they have. It's kind of like how last episode there was no good anti-weed arguments because there aren't any good anti-weed arguments. There's really <laughs> no good anti-protester arguments because protesting is inherently like a good thing to do now it's democratic yeah like it's it is literally the voice of the people it is the voice of the oppressed you know that's that's what protests are um and so to shit all over them is never a good look and we'll dig in a little bit on toby's interaction with the protesters in a bit the other things that happen uh yeah i was about to get into yeah, go. Uh, so the main other plot line that, that runs along with Sam and his cheating father is while he's trying to deal with all that, uh, Donna comes to him with a favor where she has this friend from college whose grandfather uh, is named Daniel Gaunt and was convicted by the uh, HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee or, or whatever. Uh, the you That's know it. the McCarthy the McCarthy hearings essentially you got it in one man awesome that was off the top of my head <laughs> I didn't even look that up um, he was convicted by the by Huac uh, for spying for the Russians and she is convinced of her grandfather's innocence and would like to get a posthumous uh, he died in prison six months after he was convicted and she would like to get a posthumous uh, pardon for her grandfather because her father is dying. Uh, and it would mean so much to her, her father for his father uh, to be officially pardoned and cleared uh, for these crimes that supposedly he did not commit. Yeah, and it's uh, basically Donna goes in and has told this woman that, oh, Sam, Sam can take care of this. He's got the connection. Well, not only that, she says happen. she says, talk him up to be like i know you're a powerful man who has the ear of the president <laughs> because she thinks like that'll get that'll make sam like feel real good and then he'll want to do the favor um this ends up backfiring in a, in a big big way when sam calls her on this and she's like and she kind of has to apologize and he's like yeah that was kind of a shitty thing to do you know uh to do like this favor trading shit and to imply that like i have the ear of the president yeah so that's something that winds its way through and we actually get um, this episode is rife with guest stars. Oh, so yes. as we dig out on these things, we'll mention, you know, there are a bunch of people who are not part of the regular order of the show. Um, so I, it, it makes me wonder like, oh, we just like got some budget left over. I guess. <laughs> let's, let's bring in some cool people. Yeah. Talk uh, about this, this, show, stuff. this show always does a good job of getting these like great character actors in as guest stars. Um, I think, you know, at this point it was really you know, the ratings were through the roof. This is like season two, I think in particular was like peak West wing ratings. So I think yeah. just everyone wanted to be on the show, you know, like <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they were like turning away offers by the dozens, uh, at, at, you know, so I think they had the pick of the litter 
which is why you get so many like great character actors showing up just for relatively minor guest starring roles. Yeah, so the kind of the last thing that we that is a throughput in this episode is we barely see the president at all. Correct. Um, we he only I actually kind of just I went through afterwards and I was like shit I know Bartlett was in this one but what the fuck did he do <laughs> and like I had to go back and read the the recap again even just after watching the episode I was like what the fuck did he even say or do and it's like really nothing uh, but he does have this small throughput with his brother uh, where we find out that a the president has a brother. Um, which that <laughs> kind of like Sam has a dad. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, we, n- we don't meet him. We just hear about him off screen. I don't think we'll ever meet him in the show. In fact, I don't even think he ever comes up again in the show. Uh, I can't remember him coming up again. It's, I, I think it's particularly just to turn this dramatic point. Right. Um, yeah. Or I guess to tie into the family thing, cause Sam's dealing with family issues too. So his brother calls, and his brother has been working on the presidential library location for the Bartlett Presidential Library, and their their primary spot, which is like some, you know, nice spot in New Hampshire, got denied because it's a historical landmark, uh, and there's some sort of bill in New Hampshire that passed that says you can't bulldoze this historical landmark because, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Bartlett's like, well, what asshole, idiot, motherfucker, governor, <laughs> dumbass, shithead, cocksucker. Crunchy hippie bitch did that. What fucking governor asshole signed that stupid bill? And it takes a good beat, and then it's like, oh, it was me, wasn't it? <laughs> it was me, wasn't it? And Charlie's like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> so... Actually, while we're on the subject, we can, we can just because there's nothing else. To no, talk there's about nothing. This. Yeah, let's. I re- I really enjoyed your. Yeah. Okay. Point so, about... like, it, it seems like such a non-issue, and normally this would be something that we would rant about about like, oh, why are you making a fucking issue out of this non-issue? But it is actually addressed in the episode where um someone else I forget who kind of does bring up like. Why does he give a fuck about the presidential library? Aren't we going to be here for like, a, you know, a bunch more years? Uh, and and Charlie says something along the lines of like the fact that it is a problem to him is concerning because it means like part of him is accepting the fact that, no, he might not be there for a, a few more years. You know, he might lose the midterm or who knows, his MS might act up. And it's sort of this metaphor for this presidential library issue of like what if i don't get a second term what if i have to start focusing on shit like my presidential library and my legacy and all this stuff that you do after you're done being president um when he still wants to keep doing the job yeah sure and it, i mean it's a it's a nice sort of stand in for his anxiety mm-hmm. um you know to be projected into it's good this and this frame it's it's good this is and it's this is why fans. this episode is a lot better than the last episode it's like it has all these nice thematic moments and good writing and like and not a bunch of awful politics thankfully <laughs> um so yeah let's i think that mostly covers the recap uh let's take a quick break and then we'll start digging into a couple of these issues a little more in depth So the major kind of through pro- plot line, excuse me, in this episode is the um, 
interaction of Donna's friend from college. Stephanie Galt. Stephanie Galt, whose grandfather, Daniel Galt. Correct had been convicted by HUAC back in the day and essentially sent to prison for, I mean, we can mince words about it, but it was treason. Yes, espionage um, and treason. And therefore, shortly died after he was sent to prison. There's no real backstory sent on it. Her father is dying currently. Yes. Um, he has like six months, chronic think, illness roughly. or something. Yeah. And... Basically, she is seeking a posthumous pardon because they are the family and various resources are convinced of Daniel Galt's innocence. Correct. Uh, at this point. He was, so, he, he was convicted on very shady uh, testimony from someone who was later shown to have a history of like mental institutionalization uh, and things like that. So his, his arrest had, you know, weird circumstances around it. And plus, obviously... We now know that many, many, many people who were arrested by HUAC were perfectly innocent, uh, and didn't. And it turns out there was not a massive invasion of Russian spies. Uh, so, so <laughs> this this time around, there is a theme to both of the sort of like or like the issues that we'll bring up is that you sort of just make a disclaimer out front and say like, HUAC was fucking bullshit. Right. The like, cold, the Cold War, and Cold Warriors are fucking bullshit. Like. <laughs> All of this shit is ridiculous, but it is written and framed for an American audience from the default perspective right. of institutional American imperialism being on the side of right. Yes. So we get this whole arc of, so what ends up happening is Sam well, charged first, with the... Go ahead. Go sorry. Ahead. So first I want to bring up that... So first Sam hears her request... And um, is like, well, look, you know, I, I'm currently working on the pardon list for the president, and I have about 18 names. Let me look into this a little more, and then we'll see if we can get your, your grandfather on the list. And she's like, great. And then so he starts to look into it. He's like, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the FBI and give them a heads up. Um, because, you know, they, they're going to get a little angry when, when we, when, <laughs> if we if we try to... Pardon if this we're poking guy. around in their business. Yeah, if we try to pardon this guy because it's going to make them look bad. So he, he goes over to the FBI, to Josh's friend in the FBI, because he goes over to Josh. He's like, hey, let me talk to your friend in the FBI. And uh, this is where we get our first major guest star, uh, Clark yeah. Gregg, with two Gs, a.k.a. you know him as Agent Coulson from the Marvel movies and or Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, and he started out as FBI agent Mike Casper. Uh, and what's funny is in Marvel canon, uh, they, they have decided that Agent Casper was Agent Coulson before Coulson. he before he joined Shield. <laughs> he worked he, in he the got FBI. Reassigned a new identity or something. Exactly. Because it's the exact same character. Because it is exactly the same. <laughs> he's, he's sort of he he play acts. He very plays well. it the this, same way. Yep. The, the, this like bedraggled, put upon administrative type you know and you know trust the facts doesn't you know doesn't joke around doesn't you know smile doesn't you know very very down-to-earth very matter-of-fact kind of shit so sam goes to see him and is like hey uh you know i want to pardon this daniel galt guy or at least consider it and uh he put you know uh 
Agent Casper pushes back on him, saying, like, no, you know, hey, we did good work, blah, 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 we weren't wrong, and Sam's like, well, you were wrong, you were wrong a shitload, actually, and then Casper gets, like, really, really angry, and goes off on Sam about, like, blah, 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 fuck you, the FBI is awesome, like, it's just, it's real bad. Well, and, and again, the, um, Sam, the, the initial framing of this issue is that Sam is, um, Take, taking the chance and going off the reservation right. to do this. And so not, it, Agent... It's not a huge chance. Like, you know... But but, but Agent, Agent Casper here... He does b- uh, kind of bite his head off. He says, like, this is so beyond your authority, blah, blah, blah. And, and we're, we're supposed to... I, I think the show implies that we're supposed to trust the, the institution... Of the FBI. Oh, 100%. FBI. Yes. Yes, we are. Yeah, and and this this will obviously will will continue. This, so. this is this is the first hint to Sam that he might be on a wild goose chase. Essentially, <laughs> uh, is is you know stern FBI man is telling Sam that he's wrong, and we are definitely meant to understand here that stern FBI man is the is the correct one in this scenario. Yeah, so we we get a a little bit of back and forth there. We end up going back to to the White House and kind of circling around, and eventually. Um, Sam gets called into the situation room mm-hmm. of all places and he's like, well, what the, well, what the hell? And the, the staffer, low level staffer who summons him basically has to clarify. It's like Nancy McNally, the NSA wants to see you. Right. So we get a wonderful, again, guest appearance of Anna Devere Smith. Yes, um, doing great work as saw. Nancy McNally. This is only so her second appearance, I think, so far. Yeah, we were in, we were introduced to to her back when India and Pakistan yes. were going to war. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and <laughs> which and Lord John Marbury solved, you know exactly. <laughs> so I actually just saw um, her in "Can You Ever Forgive Me," which is the Melissa McCarthy movie about the author whose name is not coming to mind but would forge letters in new york city it's actually spectacular everybody go see that movie huge plug here it took a while for the reviews to catch up with it for whatever reason and i watched it after everybody was on board it's really fucking good so it's a cool movie anyway yeah um so he so he's brought into the situation room and nancy mcnally just she She's a. She pulls the power move of she's already on a conference call with like some of the joint chiefs <laughs> of staff, and goes like, "All right, hang on, guys, hang on one minute. I gotta, I gotta deal with some shit here." And puts them on hold. Uh, turns to Sam and is like, "Sam, you done fucked up, boy. Uh, <laughs> Daniel Galt is a motherfucking spy." <laughs> He's. She, she literally says, "You're gonna." It's not asking. It's telling. It's like you're gonna drop the Daniel Galt shit right now right and sam goes well why I, i'm on a righteous cause here and she just like no 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 and she whips out this big old binder and is like don't worry i've redacted everything that like i'd have to kill you over but you should probably read all this bit here uh and i want to include this clip where she lists his various uh deeds and accomplishments that's crap if the fbi had proof on gold they would have told the world about it no they wouldn't have sam yeah, see no, they wouldn't have. Neither would the NSA, neither would Central Intelligence. You don't show someone you've broken their ciphers unless you have to. Galt was long dead. But before he was, he was an agent called Blackwater. He was a delegate at Yalta. 
and he returned to the U.S. by way of Rostov, where he was awarded the Order of Lenin. Yeah, well, I'll believe that when they show me the file. That's right. The motherfucking Order of Lenin. We stand Daniel Galt. <laughs> Hell yeah. The fatherland appreciates your service, the, sir. That is, oh my god. That's the equivalent of the Congressional Medal of Honor, people. Like, this man was a goddamn Russian hero. So, the the sort of, um, the quiet competence and um, almost dismissive attitude with which <laughs> she deals with Sam is just, it's actually... Again, barring my disclaimer earlier, is that like FBI and cop slobbery knobs aside, right, right. It's it's incredible the way she deals with this, and frankly, again, a very at you know twenty years ago, it is a time where it's like, yep, strong female character here, right. Basically, telling the ostensible at one point star of the show, right, male exactly. character. To like to that fuck you're off wrong and, like, and you're dumb and you're not gonna accomplish your fucking goal this episode. So shut it yeah. down. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. really good. It's, it's great uh, because you never see it, and especially because Sam kind of has this like righteous crusade energy, and you feel like he deserves a win because of the shit he's going through with his own dad. It's it's great to kind of see it like get yanked away so viciously. Like it plays really well as as drama. I think. Yep. You know. Yep. It just. Big, uh, very, very good energy from Nancy McNally. Yeah, yeah. So great, great stuff here. Um, the it, it ends up wrapping eventually because once he finds this out, he goes back to Donna, and this is where it. We, watching this now, is very strange. Um, the he has a conversation with Donna. He's sitting in the mess in the White House, mm-hmm. chucking sugar packets at a bowl because you know that's what you do. Sure. Um, and Donna comes down and is like, "Hey, what did you find out?" Um, oh, you know what are you gonna do? And he said he tells her like he was a Russian spy and gets just so so emotionally worked up. Yes. About it. Because he's tying it into his own personal shit with his dad. And the show... The show goes... uh, I wish the show kind of had trusted us to, like, get it more. But, like, the show kind of goes over the top and tipping its hand that that's exactly what's going on here. Because at one point he mentions, you know, that treason is connected to fidelity. And, like, that's kind of, like, your first clue that, like, oh, he's talking about his dad. And then, like... But then he, he says, like, I'm going to tell this girl who her father is. And, and yeah. Donna has to do the thing of, you mean grandfather. Like, like it's the big Freudian slip moment, you know? It, yeah, it's, it's very explicit. And it's also, you know, from the, the political side of it, it's who, who fucking cares? Right. Who cares? It's decades anymore. old. Like, it is... Yeah. As Donna says, this was paper shuffling back in the fifties. You're like, who gives a shit? And but he he wants to it... he wants to ruin the reputation of this man to this woman purely out of the spite that he is personally feeling for his own father's infidelity. When they they even give him like sort of like a paper tiger where it's like, oh well, this woman died because of his actions. So yeah, some poor innocent Russian woman or or whatever. Jeez, like, yeah. What, who was operating at a governmental level 
in the 50s and people did like people didn't die in droves right on account of their decisions and their actions right. like give me a <laughs> like, fucking break are you kidding me <laughs> like <laughs> we're, we're we're gonna we're gonna stake it on just oh this one woman who was an innocent you you want to go out innocent. to the you want to go out to the national mall and look at all the memorials sam and like counting some of the names on there <laughs> like Betcha they were innocent. Yeah, like, so. you know, like, yeah. So it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of moral bullshit. And like I said, he's all caught up with his own personal issue. But ultimately, at the end, Sam does do the right thing. And, and he finally, he pulls back literally at the last second and just says like, mm, unfortunately, we couldn't get the info, uh, but maybe we can get, you know, do this again in like three months and, and see if we can get him on the pardon list then. And the girl is like, oh, that's great. That's all my dad wanted to hear. Thanks, Sam. You're the best. Um, so so Sam ultimately does do kind of the good thing at the end, literally kind of at the last second. And in case, it's just uh, the, the tonal shift is really strange because it's like in case you weren't listening or paying attention, which, spoiler, I wasn't. <laughs> like Donna comes in and gives him a full ass like, full body hug for right. a long time being like i'm so sorry you're going through this and it's just it 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 i don't want to say it's too explicit about the emotion but it is it's it's punching you in the face being like yeah sam's uh, fucked up right again this. this is this is where the show wants to have it both ways of being smart but then also playing to the lowest common denominator with like broad over the top gestures like this of like do you get it do you get it? Like, Sam's emotional. Yeah, and he still looks just fabulous. Right. Shirt untucked, yeah, sleeves you can't, rolled up, you just can't make hair problems. disheveled. You know you, what? You can't fuck with uh, Par- Parks and Rec managed to do it in the one episode where he's <laughs> sick with the flu, but they had to do, like, a lot of makeup and stuff, you know? Like, they had to really, you have to really ugly up Rob Lowe. <laughs> to, he, he, he had to sleep in a chest freezer overnight. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's about it with the Sam storyline. Yes. We're gonna go into the uh, the Toby bit next after a brief break. Okay. So now our, our one of the other major plot lines is dealing with the protesters. Specifically, they are uh, WTO, World Trade Organization protesters, who have uh, hit D.C. hard uh, and are protesting and have arranged a, um, mo- a forum or a meeting with uh, Toby uh, to discuss their, you know, demands or, or whatever they want to discuss. Grievances. It- Grievances, sure. You know, to protest, essentially. Yes. Uh, they, are, they are using their right of free assembly, as is guaranteed under the First Amendment of the Constitution of the Bill of Rights. But, uh, so, they are portrayed as the most stereotypical, like, straw man protesters you have ever seen, in that they are completely disorganized, completely ridiculous, completely ineffectual, uh, and... Toby basically spends the entire plot line mocking them uh, both to their face and then also to our other our other guest star, uh, Roma uh, Mafia, uh, as Officer Rhonda Sachs, uh, who is the police officer who has been assigned to protect Toby 
uh, just in case some of these protesters get violent. Spoiler, they do not. They remain nicely nonviolent the entire time. Uh, to to be fair, Toby does acknowledge the fact that they don't really need the cop there, and it's going to be like a day at the beach for for both of them. The and uh, <laughs> sorry, um, and okay, so uh, so they get to they've get to this uh, meeting room uh, auditorium kind of thing, uh, and uh, they have given away the cameras. Uh, they've they've agreed to not allow TV cameras. Uh, because CJ managed to negotiate that with the protesters, um, to which um, she has a great line of uh, uh, when Toby's like, you managed to get n- no cameras? And she's like, you want to make out with me so hard right now. <laughs> and Toby also comes in and grabs like the, the quote-unquote leader and gives him this sort of lecture diatribe. Be like, you know, you know where you fucked up, son? You gave mm-hmm. away the cameras. Like, right. What the because hell? then there would have been footage of all of you protesters being unruly and me not being able to manage the crowd. But now I can just read my sports page for two hours, go outside, <laughs> tell them that we talked, uh, and no one will know the difference. Uh, which is basically what he what he ends up doing. Um, or at least what he plans on doing. And so meanwhile, while all of this is happening and the protesters are being unruly and he's just reading his sports page, Rhonda, the cop, uh, is asking Toby, like, hey, so what's this all about? And he's like, it's a World Trade Organization protest. And he's like, and she's like, yeah, I'm not an idiot. I read the signs, but what if what are they actually protesting? And so Toby goes into a bit more detail about like, well, you know, there's unfair. You know, he actually does a pretty good job of laying out both sides of the argument. Uh, but at the same time, he also just completely shits all over them by basically coming to the conclusion that free trade is is ultimately good. And yes, while it has its problems. Uh, it's it's the neoliberal global globalization world order now, and we should all just accept it. Yeah. So, and he tries to sort of uh, set up this like historical and and I I guess fact based perspective on this stuff. And let's be clear, all of this, much like every other political issue in this show, is defined from the default perspective. Of the neoliberal consensus, and is overly simplified and super overly simplified. He he, o- he really only lists the positives and barely goes into any negatives, even when he is trying to give their side a fair shake. And it's the the weird again a weird tonal shift where he actually ends up talking with Rhonda and being like, "Hey, do you remember when I was a protester? Man, 1968 was so great." Like. All we did was show up and, you know, yell at the the police in the building. And then we went all went home and, you know, it it was fine. And it's for a... (laughs) It's the the most tone deaf, like, fucking... Like, this. these are you, Toby. These are literally you 30 years later. Like, and now you're just shitting all over them because you've become the man. Like, that's literally what it is. and, And while he's making these references... He proceeds then to make the completely wrong takeaway conclusion from it, being like, "Hey, do you remember? Do you remember the DNC in 1968? Nothing bad ever came out of that. I'm sure <laughs> it was all good. We did some protesting, and then, and then we and, solved all the and then we problems. solved all the problems. Yeah, like, and here we are in 19. I guess it's 2000 in the year 2000 America, and things are just peachy. And <laughs> n- never mind." any of the police militarization issues, never mind any of the further concentration of capital and wealth, never mind the 
continued basically the at that point the inception of the prison industrial complex the, the massive inequality we see on a global scale particularly when it comes to the global south who is who is going to become another factor into the other plot line of this episode that we haven't even talked about yet <laughs> uh which is cartographers for social equality which they're going to get their own segment but, um like toby's just so contemptuous and yes the i i believe i thoroughly believe that the intention of the writer is to promote him as a well i became older and wiser and now i'm uh, and that's why i'm this. turning you in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely yeah. yeah and by the way sorkin wrote this one too uh it does have another co-writer paul redford but uh just like the last one sorkin gets the blame on this one too uh, and I can tell that Sorkin fucking hates protesters, man. Hates them. He has definitely been held up in traffic by some protesters one time, <laughs> and it really, really got to him. Uh, because, man, he hold, he pulls no punches on just ma- writing these guys as the most detestable, hateable, fucking hippie stereotypes you can possibly picture. And, again, this is <clears throat> something where the show has aged particularly poorly because the inevitable consequence of the sort of um, the perpetuation of these policies that people are protesting against is that the quote unquote, the, the protester class encompasses more and more people right? as these yeah. things evolve. So, so yeah. So here's the thing. He makes a fucking cheap hit about like, no, oh, look, look, we're here in Washington, DC, which is one of the, you know, blackest cities in the country. And I look out on a sea of what of white faces. Where's the third world that they claim that they represent? <laughs> and, and Rhonda, the cop fires back with a great quip of like, oh, yeah, there were a lot of third worlders in your cabinet meeting this morning, huh, Toby? <laughs> Thoroughly owned. We're going to leave aside the fact that she's a cop. Just yeah, that was you, that Toby. was nice. <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, and to to be fair, he does say like ah, point taken. <laughs> yeah. um, but Sorkin so she gives him, she gives him a bit of pushback. But yes, yes, very much so. Ugh. Um, and that that pretty much wraps this up. Uh, let's take another quick break, and then we'll dig into the cartographers for social <laughs> equality. Hooray! <laughs> So the last thing that we actually get a glimpse of this time around is it's Big Block of Cheese Day. And as opposed to the last Big Block of Cheese Day where we actually see several issues Mm -hmm. play out in the White House, this episode focuses on one totally wacky (laughs) group of activists that actually, and in, in a very charming way, has CJ sort of interact with and engage with them in very good faith. Eventually, the group is I I honestly do not even know what the official name of the group. I think it was Cartographers for Social Equality. Cartographers for Social Equality. And they give a very compelling presentation of the fact that the way that the Mercator map projection is displayed and portrayed to American school children Mm -hmm. and frankly the world around Mm -hmm. tends to 
exaggerate the size of the landmass in the northern hemisphere of western of and quote unquote western civilization western civilization yes. and therefore emphasize its importance and dominance over the global south yeah um uh, i want to include the clip here where he lists off some statistics about size and things like that are you saying the map is wrong oh dear yes uh, look at greenland okay now look at africa okay the two land masses appear to be roughly the same size. Yes. Would it blow your mind if I told you that Africa is in reality 14 times larger? Yes. Here we have Europe drawn considerably larger than South America. When it's 6.9 million square miles, South America is almost double the size of Europe's 3.8 million. Alaska appears three times as large as Mexico when Mexico is larger by 0.1 million square miles. Germany appears in the middle of the map when it's in the northernmost quarter of the Earth. Wait, wait, relative size is one thing, but you're telling me that Germany isn't where we think it is? Nothing's where you think it is. Where is it? I'm glad you asked. And again, yeah, he's making great points here where, if you know, why does Greenland look like it's a whole fucking continent? You know, why does, you know, why does Alaska look like it's, you know, bigger than Mexico? Three times the size of Mexico, right. yeah. <laughs> when when Mex- they're basically the same size. Uh, you know, shit like that, and, you know, the global south gets fucking shafted, where Africa looks as big as Greenland, you know, <laughs> and, like, and of course we're gonna in- inherently, as humans, like, we make things that look bigger are of more importance to us, and particularly for children, you know, if you drill this shit in their heads, it, you, you're literally propagandizing them into into viewing the world in this imperialist cultural way. Yeah, and this is uh, frankly in in the year 2000 when this is written and recorded this idea was probably just crank level radical. Yes. But it's a a particularly delightful glimpse of like future intersectionality work where it's meant to sound ridiculous at the time but even sort of within uh, and i want to believe the writer's like subconscious level you just can't keep cj from being intrigued and digging in on right this issue right absolutely so like you said she does she does engage in good faith josh is there as well he's not engaging in good faith he's basically there to be an mst3k riffer uh, <laughs> while, while they're doing their presentation he doesn't really have any great funny lines, sadly. Um, but yeah, so while they're, you know, they, they show then the corrected map, and CJ is the kind Peter's of... Projection. The Peter's it's Projection. The Peter's Projection. The Peter's Projection. They show the corrected map to CJ, and she's kind of, like, blown away. And not in a, like, crank way, in, like, a, oh, shit way of, like, she's kind of realizing that, like... Maybe we really have fucked up this map thing, and maybe this does have, like, kind of knock-on effects for our entire society, you know, even and, in and, a small way. And it's so, I think, this is this is why I particularly like this, is because it's so ubiquitous, and everybody just assumes, having seen it, and again, this is very American, right? but, like, you see it in elementary school, right. And this is what the world looks like. This is how the entire planet is presented to me in my formative years. And it's like, if you see it in a different way, it's, it's quite jarring, you know? And again, having had this moment, 
decades ago. <laughs> it's like, holy shit. Right. It's it, it, totally wild. Yeah, and you know, it's it's one of these things where not enough analysis really goes into the way our culture, you know, it's not it doesn't have to be a top-level down conspiracy. It can be this sort of unintentional confabulation of various factors that that creates this, but we still don't really analyze like the way our culture has been formed and shaped and what sort of messages it's sending to our children and our people in general. And that, and we don't really challenge some of these cultural assumptions on, on a deep enough level that we should be challenging them on, particularly when they do lead to harmful outcomes. Yeah. We also, and the, the cool thing is that the cartographers are a, another bunch of, bunch of guest stars, which are great. And I don't, I don't know if I recognized any of them from anything else. I, Did you? I, I feel like I knew one, the main guy, like the okay. um, uh, John Billingsley. Oh, he was on Scrubs. That's where I know him from. Um, he was he's the main the main map guy. Uh, he was on Twenty Four. He was in the movie Twenty Twelve, that disaster movie, uh, with hmm. Cusack. Um. Yeah, but and then the other two are uh, Jordan Baker and Brent Hinckley, and I feel like I know Hinckley from something too. Um, Gosh, he's, he has I don't know, he has man. one of those faces where if you see him, you're like, oh, that guy. He's shown up in a mil- he's one of those hey, it's that guy kind of things. Uh, but yeah. yeah, they all do very good work um, in the in this short scene that they're given because it's really just like you know two parts of one scene that we cut back to at one point. They probably get five minutes of total screen time. But they really make the most of it in taking, and that this is sort of the theme of Big Block of Cheese Day is that oh these stupid cranks, but hey wait a minute the crank has a point. <laughs> well, and it's um, it, uh, again it's like um, I can't figure out what the intent is here. Is the intent to be like these these minor issues are actually legitimately important? We should take care to pay attention to them or is it we're going to present these issues in a over serious fashion to tell like have the audience be like oh pfft. i think it's you know, more of the former it's all i really do and i would like to but be, like particularly to because of credit. cj's reaction you know and I, that I'd she like treats to give it them seriously that yes yeah and because it's again it's a it's a wonderful and, foreshadowing of intersectionality yeah. and sort of like the dialectical approach to things that yeah and i think i think we're meant to look at josh's dismissal and realize that he's being immature and and foolish you know i think i'm pretty sure that that is what the intent of the writer is here um and it's not it's because again that is sort of the meta plot of these big block of cheese days is hey crank has a point uh and maybe we yes. should be listening to these cranks more often which is what the the whole first one was was like them getting up in arms about oh we don't want to do big block of cheese day and then the end of the day they're like actually it was really really good and I learned a lot yeah and this time around it's that's my doorbell anyway it's um it's just incredibly I think it's very good. It's prescient in a way that a lot yeah. of the show isn't. It's yeah. laying. It's it's untime capsule 
um actually yeah. it's it's yeah it's it's evergreen it's it's and it, it's it's, it's too bad it's in the it's too bad it's in the form of a gimmick yes like this where it's like oh, but okay. again I, th- um, I think they blow past gimmick at, toward yes, toward you absolutely. know by the time they're getting to the end bit i think you know the the show is trying to impact the seriousness of of the issue yeah absolutely okay uh, and I think that that brings this to a close. Let's uh, we'll take another quick break and then we'll do our wrap up and uh, and sign off. Don't say All right, and that does it for this particular episode. Um, before we sign off, couple last things to bring up here. So this the episode title comes from a lyric from the song New York Minute. Um, and it's weird because we, we actually open on the title card with the song playing, uh, with, with the lyric, somebody's going to emergency, somebody's going to jail, uh, as the title card fades out. And then we find out that this song is actually on the radio in Toby's office where Sam is passed out on the couch. Because when Leo comes in, Sam actually turns off the radio and the song dies. So it is actually a diegetic song, uh, meaning it actually exists in the fiction of the show as opposed to something like the background score, which we, the audience, understand that the characters cannot hear the score. uh, But in this case, Toby and Leo can actually hear uh, the eponymous song uh, as as it is playing in Toby's office. It's not. A, it's I, not a part of the score. It's not played over the scene. Right, right. Um, and then, so uh, I believe he has used this song before in an episode of Sports Night. I was trying to look it up, but Google failed me because the term is kind of too ambiguous. Um, but I'm pretty sure that happens. And I don't. I have no idea why Sorkin likes this particular song <laughs> or thought it was appropriate for this particular episode. It feels just kind of randomly chosen and it's weird because we don't really do songs on this show like not songs with lyrics not usually so i want to i'm gonna throw it out there that it's it's the kind of don henley song that much like we talked about last week doesn't cost any money to license (laughs) because it's Ah. it's not one of his big hits or anything, but you know that explains it. I recognize that voice. He was in the Eagles. Ooh, it's like it's a very love. So it's it's a boomer, way of getting. Yeah, I get you. Boomer appealing song. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, so the next episode is going to be entitled "The Stackhouse Filibuster," uh, which refers to a senator Stackhouse who who does a traditional style filibuster, where you actually stand up there and speak uninterrupted. Um, hoping to stave off a vote on Bartlett's Family Wellness Act bill. Meanwhile, Toby is leery of the Vice President Hoyne's sudden interest um, in bills um, that he's supporting and and suspects that he might be gearing up to run for president against Bartlett uh, in the next election. A primary challenge on your first term. Trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that should be fun to discuss. Again, thanks for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, we'd love to hear it. Drop us a line in the thread if you found us on the forums. If you found us a different way, you can always shoot us an email at theworstwing69 at gmail.com. <laughs> nice. Nice. And uh, we will see you next week for another fun episode of The Worst Wing. 
Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Send all the money you ask for, but don't ask me to come on 